This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna Hobart. Great Barrier Reef should be classified as in danger on the list of World Heritage Sites. That's according to a United Nations delegation, which travelled to the reef earlier this year, inspecting several locations. In a report published overnight, it's given a list of recommendations to protect and restore the reef, saying a rapid escalation of corrective measures is needed. But it also warns action to limit global temperature rises to within one and a half degrees Celsius are crucial. Stephanie Smale reports. The pressures on the Great Barrier Reef are no secret. The string of threats include mass coral bleaching that drains the colour from the usually vibrant marine treasure and increasingly acidic water. A UN delegation has confirmed those threats. The group was sent to closely inspect the health of the World Heritage Site after a draft recommendation that it should be put on the in danger list. It's now decided to back that recommendation. By definition, in danger means the characteristics that make it so special are being eroded. Tackling global warming was at the top of the delegation's list of priorities to improve the reef's future. Australian Marine Conservation Society campaigner Cherry Muddle agrees. Global warming is the reef's greatest threat, driving marine heat waves that have led to the mass bleaching events in recent years. The government must combat climate change and do their fair share to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees because this is the critical threshold for coral reefs. Are you confident the federal government is doing enough to safeguard the reef's future? The current uh, climate policies are nowhere near close enough to holding warming to 1.5 degrees. We need to urgently and rapidly slash fossil fuel emissions now to cool down the reef and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. The report says the Queensland government has a big part to play too. But Richard Leck from WWF Australia argues it's not inevitable the Great Barrier Reef will end up on the in danger list. What this report shows is the Australian and Queensland governments need to really step up and embrace these new recommendations that UNESCO and IUCN have made and then they'll be assessed on their performance. And on the basis of that, will determine whether the reef uh, is a, is eventually listed in danger. Are they moving fast enough? I think clearly if we haven't seen fast enough movement uh, to protect the reef in the past. We know our reef is under stress. Um, this is an urgent call. This is a real opportunity for Australia to show that on climate change uh, and protecting nature, we've moved from being a global laggard to a global leader. This is that first opportunity. It's a big test for the Australian government to show that's happening. In a statement, Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek and Special Envoy for the Great Barrier Reef, Nita Green, say since the delegation's visit, the government has engaged in constructive dialogue with UNESCO and taken a number of significant steps forward. The Queensland Environment Minister, Megan Scanlon, has emphasised the same point, saying things have changed since the report was written. Stephanie Smale reporting there, and AM asked the Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plebisek, for an interview about this, but her office says she's unavailable. 
Advocates for an Indigenous voice to Parliament say they're dismayed by the Nationals' decision to formally oppose it. The Federal Liberals haven't made a decision on it yet. A junior coalition partner announced yesterday it wouldn't support the creation of a voice. It's expected a referendum on it will be put to the Australian people by the end of next year. The move has dashed hopes that the vote would receive bipartisan support. Historically, that's been a defining factor in successful referendums. Political reporter Noor Haider has more. The Nationals' decision to oppose an Indigenous voice to Parliament took many by surprise, including Dean Parkin, a Kwanda Mukaman and director of From the Heart, which is campaigning for a constitutionally enshrined voice. It's a strange decision. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's very much premature. And it means that the Nationals are making a decision without all the information. Nationals leader David Littleproud says the voice would add another layer of bureaucracy and would not help close the gap. But Dean Parkin says the voice is designed to improve outcomes. We want real, meaningful, constitutional recognition. And the best way that we can do that is through a voice to Parliament that allows our people on the ground to advise politicians and bureaucrats about what works best in their communities. There's nothing more practical. Dr Summer May Finlay is a Yorta Yorta woman and a senior lecturer in Indigenous health at the University of Wollongong. She's accused the Nationals of playing politics. People in a rural and remote area actually are smart enough to see through this. And she's called on all Australians to take a measured approach. Don't listen to politicians. Don't listen to your friends about this necessarily. Go and actually read the Uluru Statement for yourself and make your own decision. Do your own research. The Liberal Party has not revealed what position it'll take ahead of the referendum. There are suggestions its members could be given the choice to campaign however they wish. While no date has officially been set, the referendum is expected to take place towards the end of next year. Later this week, Labor will outline some of the logistical details and is expected to confirm that taxpayer funding will not be given to the yes or no campaign. Professor George Williams is a constitutional law expert at the University of New South Wales. The law as it stands is that the government can't fund yes and no cases. It's actually prohibited. So if it leaves things be, we'll have the yes and the no cases each raising their own funds and the government may well decide that's the best outcome anyway. That's because the yes case probably has greater fundraising potential. Of the 44 referendums that have been put to the Australian public, the eight that were successful had bipartisan support. It doesn't necessarily mean it will play out the same way this time. Even if the Nationals and even some other groups um, go against, there's a very strong groundswell of community opinion here built up over many years. And in fact, also civil society, corporate groups and the like, that may well be sufficient to outweigh some of that political opposition. That's Professor George Williams, a constitutional law expert, ending Nor Haydar's report. If you're a renter or trying to rent, you'll be familiar with this. Huge crowds at inspections, a Hunger Games-style application process, eviction notices and rent increases. A new report out today has found rentings become less affordable in every single Australian capital city this year and regional Australia's been hit even harder. One housing expert says... They're the worst renting conditions in Australia since the Great Depression. The specialist reporting team's Nick Sass has the story. Maddie Parsons is used to packing up. Actually, swap these ones out. I don't think that's going to fit in the box. 
The 38-year-old retail worker has been renting in share houses in and around Hobart for much of her adult life. But this one will be her last. I think that the positive is going to be having a space that I am not going to have that fear of having taken away. Um, that's been a constant sort of threat, I guess, in rental properties. But Maddie isn't buying a property. Instead, she's moving 45 minutes out of Hobart to the nearby Huon Valley and into her parents' shed. Oh, this is your new home. And this is it. It's starting to come together. I've got a bit of painting to do this weekend. Across Australia, stories like Maddie's are increasingly common. Renting is less affordable in every capital city, and the regions are just as bad, particularly along the East Coast. The Rental Affordability Index report from SGS Economics and Planning, released today, shows why. It found affordability in Brisbane is the worst it has ever been, with regional areas in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland and Tasmania at unprecedented levels. What we're seeing right now is uh, a housing affordability uh, issue across the whole country. Emma Greenhall is a contributor to the report and chief executive of housing advocacy group National Shelter. So there is absolutely you know, very little rental housing available uh, you know, for, for the demand that is out there. Uh, so it's highly competitive. So landlords are, and property owners are able to ask, you know, what, whatever it is that they would like, um, you know, for housing. Leo Patterson-Ross from National Association of Tenants Organisations says the state of the rental market is the worst in generations. I think if we're going to go back to find historical examples, we're really going back to times like the Great Depression to find comparable points in Australian history of when it was so tough to be a renter in Australia. The Albanese government plans to build one million affordable homes to address the issue of a lack of affordable housing. Housing experts say it's a good start, but it will take time to ease the renting pressure. In the short term, they want better protection of renters from price spikes and evictions. Back in Tasmania, Maddie is preparing for a big few weeks of renovations to turn her shed into a home. And she says for that, she's thankful. I don't like that my friends around me and then other people are in this situation. Renter Maddie Parsons ending that report by Nick Sass. Police across multiple Chinese cities have moved to prevent more gatherings after a protest movement erupted calling for an end to COVID zero restrictions. East Asia correspondent Bill Birdles reports. Protesters hoping to hit the streets for a second night in Beijing were met by a great wall of security in the capital student district. After the flurry of protests over the weekend across 17 provinces, China's surveillance state has already swung into action. After thousands of students gathered at a prestigious Beijing university on the weekend, one was filmed being led away by a group of plainclothes men on Monday. He yelled, without freedom, I'd rather die, as they took him. In Shanghai, on the street where a crowd yelled for China's leader Xi Jinping and the ruling Communist Party to stand down, barricades have now been put up. The gathering point for protesters all blocked off. Reports say police have been stopping people on the street to see if their phones have foreign messaging apps or to delete photos of the protests. But videos of the demonstrations are still being widely shared on Chinese social media and they've sparked solidarity demonstrations from Chinese outside the London Embassy. They've also sparked a rare protest in Hong Kong. 
a city some argue is now even harder to protest in than the mainland. China's government, though, is not for turning. While local officials across major cities quietly lifted restrictions on many buildings in the wake of the protests, Xi Jinping is staying silent. But his spokespeople, like the Foreign Ministry's Zhao Lijian, say China must stick with a COVID-zero elimination path. China has been following a dynamic zero-COVID policy. We believe that with the leadership of the Communist Party of China and the cooperation of the Chinese people, our fight against COVID will be successful. The propaganda agencies are already flooding the Chinese internet with messages saying the protesters are foreign-backed and attempting a colour revolution. It's a familiar narrative in China when there's unrest. But a former academic and now independent commentator in Beijing, Wu Qiang, says support for the anti-lockdown movements is broad. If you look at the scale and the number of people involved in these protests, it shows normal people are sympathetic to the calls to end lockdowns. And then there are students who are taking it further with talk of democracy. But that idea isn't as abstract this time compared with protests in the past. There's much more shared sentiment this time. At 40,000 new cases a day, no exit plan in sight and a population sick and tired of complying, the coming weeks will be a pivotal time for Xi Jinping and the nation he has sought to shield from the virus for so long. This is Bill Bertels reporting for AM. Lawyers for disgraced movie producer Harvey Weinstein will begin making their case in a Los Angeles court this week as Weinstein faces a second trial. It's been five years since allegations against him ignited the global Me Too movement in a film about the New York Times expose of his behaviours currently showing around Australia. And while widespread changes have been made to working conditions in Hollywood, women in the industry say it's still not enough. Brittany Klein filed this report from Washington. Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? The new film, She Said, documents the New York Times investigation, which exposed a flawed industry that had covered up decades of sexual abuse by one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. This is bigger than Weinstein. This is about the system protecting abusers. Zoe Kazan plays Jodie Cantor, one of two journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein story in 2017. I think we've seen concrete changes in our industry that wouldn't have happened without this kind of reporting and the bravery of the people who step forward. The reporting by the New York Times led to global recognition for the Me Too movement and thousands of women around the world recounting similar stories. You only have to open a newspaper right now to see how things have not changed so far for women all across the world, how much further we have to go. Five years later, Harvey Weinstein is a convicted rapist, serving a 23-year jail sentence. The 70-year-old still denies any wrongdoing. The Weinstein trial itself did not address the complicity and willful ignorance by the movie industry. Cheryl Bader is a professor of law at Fordham University. She believes institutions like film studios and production houses still haven't been held to account. And those who really helped facilitate this abuse because they wanted to ride Weinstein's coattails. Visible changes are afoot, though, like the decision to hire women in all the key production roles in the film, she said. Carrie Mulligan plays journalist Megan Toohey. And every job that 
I've worked on since then has had a, you know, anti-harassment workshop at the beginning for the whole cast and for the crew. And Many film and TV productions now also have what's called an intimacy coordinator, someone whose sole role on set is to help actors and directors navigate sex scenes. Avenues are clearly laid out for reporting harassment. There's no going back to the days before the hashtag went viral. Deborah Turkheimer is a former prosecutor who's written a book on how survivors of sexual assault are treated in the wake of Me Too when coming forward. While progress has been made, she says the system is still skewed to protect perpetrators. There is some backlash to this kind of reporting and we see it in defamation suits we see it in convictions that are being unraveled. While Harvey Weinstein's legal team is currently presenting their defence case in Los Angeles, they've been granted leave to appeal his current convictions by New York's highest court. This is Brittany Klein in Washington reporting for AM. Catty Tunda Lake Eyre has all but dried up ahead of summer after excess water from Queensland's floods earlier in the year made the long journey to the ginormous salt lake. The Lake Eyre Basin covers almost a sixth of Australia's landmass and its continued health is vital for First Nations people, graziers and tourist operators. And ex- it's expected all of them will have their say on its future as the federal government puts together a strategic plan for the basin. But as Carly Willis reports, there are concerns an initial draft plan barely scratches the surface. At Rosebirth Station in southwest Queensland, Jeff Morton takes a fairly long-term view of the land his family has worked for over four generations. Nothing's changed over the millennia. It's country that sort of self-manages itself if you let it, so long as you don't overstock it. People say it's a fragile country. It's not fragile country, it's very resilient country. Misuse of the land is one issue on the federal government's draft management plan for the Lake Eyre Basin, which is out for public consultation until early December. Farmers, energy companies, First Nations groups and conservationists are all expected to have their say. Professor Robert Fowler is an environmental lawyer. He says the plan doesn't address the big threats facing the basin including increased tourism and fracking. It's written in very, very general terms. And the feedback that I'm receiving from conservation groups is that it is at too high a level, too general a level, and it does not address some of the more obvious and specific challenges that are needing to be confronted with respect to the future management of the basin. So it's an effort to try to avoid conflict, but in the process it doesn't really do anything that's particularly useful or practical. Grazier Jeff Morton agrees, but he believes those who rely on the land can work it out without too much government interference. It's fairly toothless. There's nothing dramatic in there, nothing to be controversial. It all can work, so long as we all work a bit of common sense. Earlier this year, Origin Energy scrapped plans to frack on the Queensland side of the Lake Eyre Basin. Mythica elder George Gorringe doubts it will be the last fossil fuel company showing interest in the area. He says under the draft plan, First Nations communities don't have any real power to stop oil and gas exploration on culturally significant sites. The native title laws... They're, they're weak. We, we don't have any right to negotiate. If you don't have native title over it, you pretty well don't have much say at all. And if you have native title, it's very limited. The only rights you have is fishing, hunting and that sort of stuff.
The Federal Department of Climate Change, Energy, the Environment and Water says the proposal will be underpinned by more detailed implementation plans which are yet to be developed. Public consultation on the Lake Eyre Basin Plan closes on December 5th. That report by Carly Willis and Angus Randall. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lang. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Australia's about to have a new industrial relations system that's meant to increase wages for the nation's lowest paid workers. Today, business and economics reporter Gareth Hutchins on what's set to change and who will be better off. Keep listening to hear ABC News Daily or find the podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.